If you'll open your Bibles and turn with me, we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Just a quick note about me. I never, I was talking with uh, Matt Fender this week, and I just, I'm a Calvinist, I'm a Presbyterian, but I never went through a cage stage. And if you're wondering what that is, you can ask Matt. You know, we talked about it. And basically, you know, just a cage stage, just as if you don't know, something that gets you fired up. You learn about the doctrines of grace. You learn about the worship of God. You learn about church government. And those things don't seem to get other people fired up, but it really gets you fired up. And you just kind of go at it. And every conversation you get, you, you instantly go from zero to 100 degrees right then and there. And you start wrestling with it. I never went through a cage stage. I kind of just read my Bible. And I came across the doctrines of grace, the goodness of God and his sovereignty. And I just kind of found myself believing it. However, if I did have some topic that was a cage phase of mine, it would be about the worship of God. John Piper said that missions, that the reason why we have missions is because there's places on this earth where worship doesn't exist. And in Deuteronomy chapter 12, we're going to be just reading the last four verses, 29 to 32. We're going to see the same sort of feeling that we just read in Acts chapter 17. Paul was in Athens, and he saw people worshiping idols, and that provoked him. It provoked him to bear witness to his neighbors, to call them to repentance and faith, to trust in the one true living God, particularly in the person, as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. His heart was provoked, but his heart was provoked by seeing false worship. And that's what we get when we are in Deuteronomy chapter 12. And just one more note before I read. Because it's kind of cage, I'm kind of cage stagey about this topic, about the worship of God, it might come across as we are doing things right, we're doing things by the book, and all other people, all those other people out there are wicked sinners who are not abiding by God's word. And while we're going to read, that is important. We should be able to have a standard, the standard of God's word, by which we judge truth from error. And if we see down the world, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't pause to say, you know, I'm not going to be offensive and not tell them that what they're doing is wrong. However, just with any of the commandments, if you ever are reading any of the Ten Commandments and you say, I got that one down, you probably aren't understanding it right. The law, all of God's law is to function as a mirror, revealing our own sinfulness. So I'm going to try my best not to be just pointing out to the world and where it's falling short, but making sure that we pause and we're reflecting on God's law to see where we fall short, where we need to turn from our sins and trust in God. Let's read God's holy, inerrant word. 
starting at verse 29. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods that I also may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. This is the reading of God's holy word. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word as a guide to our hearts, a heart that wants to love God and follow him. I pray that your word this morning would be effective in our lives, revealing our sin, showing us where we need to repent, showing how far short of the glory of God we have come, and that we would see how glorious Christ is in saving us, wretched sinners. We love you, Lord. We praise your name. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. The title for this sermon is The Biblical Pattern for Worship. The Biblical Pattern for Worship. And I'm not going to beat around the bush. The answer and the solution is pretty simple, and it's in verse 32. The biblical pattern for worship is obedient worship. The pattern that we're given by God's word, and it's very similar to everything that God speaks to, every issue that God speaks to, our task, our goal, is to be obedient, to listen to it, to do it, to submit to it as God is our master. Jesus bought us with a price. He owns us, and we belong to him, and he deserves our worship. And I'm only going to be covering two points. The first is the necessity of biblical, of obedient worship. And then we're just going to look at how does the Bible define obedient worship. The first being, why is obedient worship necessary? Or even is it necessary? It is. And then, how obedient worship is defined by God's word. So first, why is obedient worship necessary? Well, let's look at verse 29. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them. We are jumping right in the middle of a book right in the middle of Deuteronomy. And if you were to read through the book of Deuteronomy, 
the title of it is The Second Giving of the Law. It's in the, in the Greek name, the Greek version of that name, Deuteronomy. But the Hebrew name of it talks about these are the words, these are the sayings. This word, these sayings that we have in Deuteronomy is Moses' explanation of God's law. He's giving us a detailed outline of what God has delivered to him on Mount Sinai that the Israelites are to hear, to listen to, and to obey. He starts off with, in the first four chapters, defining that our salvation, the salvation that the Israelites had, was by grace. That he reached out, that he saved them, that he delivered them. And then also by grace, he's given us instructions. Instructions for how those saved people are to live. And then in chapter 5, he gives us the Ten Commandments. Repeated almost verbatim from Exodus chapter 20. And then the rest of Deuteronomy is explaining and applying those Ten Commandments. Explaining what does it mean to worship God and Him alone? What does it mean that we're not to worship God by images or bow down to them? Does that second commandment, is it just limited to we need to not worship through images and as long as we do that, we're okay? That's not the case. And Deuteronomy points that out. And Deuteronomy chapter 12 is all about the worship of God, the purity of the worship of God, how Israel is to worship God. And if you turn back, just turn back to the beginning of chapter 12, and let's kind of, let's get a little quick glimpse of what the focus of it is. Verse 2, talking about when they're coming into the land, you are surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you dispose, uh, dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills under every green tree, Verse 4, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Verse 5, talking about you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose. Verse 11, then to the place the Lord your God will choose. Verse 13, take care that you do not offer burnt offerings at any place you see, but at the place the Lord your God will choose. Are you seeing the repetition here? Throughout this chapter, he's really focused on the place where they worship and also where they offer their burnt offerings. The Israelites are in the wilderness. Moses is speaking to the Israelites, giving them God's law in preparation for living in the land. The tabernacle has not been set up on a specific mountain yet. The place that God will choose in the midst of one of those tribes, that's going to be the temple that Solomon built on Mount Zion. But right now, the Israelites are living in the land, and they see everyone around them on every single high hill worshiping some deity or another. The one they mainly see is Molech. And we'll talk about him a little bit in a little bit. But what the Israelites are living in and the first reason why he commands the, the context for obedient worship and why it's necessary is because he's looking at the world that we live in. Fred reminded me, uh, 
this was a couple months back when we were going through a study book in the, one of the downstairs classes, uh, Second Thessalonians, that the world that we live in, and we, we, t- we forget this so often, that the world that we live in is a Romans 1 world. And that's hit me, and I've probably mentioned that probably like two or three times while up here. But the world that we live in is a Romans 1 world. What defines that world? It's a world that's dominated by sin. It's a world that's dominated by rebellion. Specifically, rebellion against the obvious. There is one true God who's invisible, and his invisible attributes have been manifested in all of creation, and yet the world has turned from worshiping the creature, uh, the creator, to serve the creature. Worshiping God through all sorts of images of mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. That's the world that they live in. And if we look at our world too, we see that it's just as dominated by the worshiping of false gods. It's idol worship. It might not look like bowing down to specific images, even though that does happen still in most of the world. But it does look like people, at least in the United States, creating a God in their imaginations. Creating a standard that he might have or that they would like for him to have. And instead of listening and obeying who God really is and how he's revealed himself in his word, because they find the God of the Bible offensive, they invent and worship a figment of their imagination. That's the world that we live in. But it's not, the reason why we, why obedient worship is not, is necessary is not just because false worship exists, but it's because God cares about it. Look how much time he spent an entire chapter focusing on the place of worship and that every high hill is not to be a place of worship. This, I don't know about you, but the first time I encountered this, this kind of struck me kind of weird. Does God really care about where we worship? When we worship? How we worship? Does God not just accept our sincerity in worship? Well, if we just look at the first four commandments, does God care about when we worship? The fourth commandment is about when we worship, that we worship him one day in seven. And then if you were living in Israel, You had a whole prescribed schedule of feast days that you were appointed to keep. Does God care about where we worship? Well, we just read that. Does God care about how we worship him? I've already mentioned the second commandment. You shall not bow down or worship them, referring to the images, for I am the Lord your God. God cares. Does God care that we worship? Yes. The very first commandment tells us that you shall have no, any, no other gods before me. Who we worship matters. What we, what we worship matters. That we worship matters. When, where, how. God takes special prerogative concerning his worship. 
He is, when we read the Bible, he is zealous about it. And when we see other people not worshiping him, just like it did to Paul, that should move us. Talk about reasons for missions, reasons for witnessing to other people. Should we, worship, should we witness to the world because people are going to hell? Absolutely. We should love other people enough that we do not want to see them live their lives, experience God's justice and his just wrath upon them. We should care about other people, especially more than ourselves. Or at least the second greatest commandment, as much as ourselves. But if we have a sense of who the God of the Bible is, his greatness, his majesty, his power, we know that obedient worship is necessary because of who God is. And when we see other people not worshiping him, that should provoke us. Provoke us to call on people to turn from whatever they're doing, the gods they're worshiping, and worship the one true living God. Think about Psalm 121 and what it would have been like for an Israelite. If you want a, a, a picture of what it would have been like to be an Israelite wandering through the land, Psalm 121 is written later in Israel's history, but the temple is still far away. They have to create, have a long journey to it. And Psalm 121 is written in a time when the people of God are scattered everywhere and are having to make a long trek. Psalm 121 says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The psalmist is not walking to the temple thinking, my, these hills and this creation is beautiful. Let me praise the Lord. No. The psalmist is walking through the wilderness, seeing on every high hill, people crying out to their gods to save them. And he asks himself, where does my help come from? My help doesn't come from the God on all these hills. I'm going to the temple of the Lord, the the place where God has chosen for his worship. That's where my help comes from. And that's where our help comes from. Obedient worship is necessary. And it's not ne just necessary because of the world that we live in. This, this world that has rebelled against God. But it's also necessary because of our sinful tendencies. Our heart. Look at verse 30. Take care that you're not ensnared to follow them. After they've been destroyed before you in inquiring into their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods that I may do the same? When it comes to worship, does sincerity matter? Of course it does. Deuteronomy chapter 10, Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 6 all talk about the fact that we need to have our hearts circumcised. We need to have our stiff-necked hearts circumcised so that we're able to worship God, and then we'll worship Him in sincerity and in truth. That we're to teach these things to our children. That we are to 
live after him. Worship is, does concern sincerity. But the how of it is also very important. And it's something that we tend to neglect. Notice that he, the, the Hebrew who's going into the land, God knows what they're going to be tempted to do. They're going to be tempted to be ensnared. They're going to be tempted to look at how the gods, how the nations worship their gods. So and the, the purpose of the inquiry is that I may do the same. Calvin said that we are naturally inclined to think that God will approve of our worship as long as it is, it, it is sincere. But, what, but all over scripture, we see that God hates that kind of worship. That might sound harsh. But the sincerity of the question of how do other people worship their gods so that I might worship them also. If you doubt God's word that he does hate this worship, and in fact, that he really does hate it. Look at Leviticus 10.10, when we are told that Aaron and his brother, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. What kind of fire is this? We don't know. We just know that. The next phrase, which he had not commanded them. And what happened to them in Leviticus 10? They were consumed. God is a holy God. He does have wrath on sin. And we're, our ignor- we don't, we're not ignorant of God's ways. We're, the fact that he killed and lashed out at Nadab and Abihu should have been obvious to them because they were dealing with a holy God And they've been given God's law. Ignorance was not an excuse for them. If we look at the ways, different ways, especially if we think about Romans 1, about our sinful tendencies. Our sinful tendencies are to worship, worship, to do, conduct worship that is ignorant in the sense of it ignores who God is. And chooses to worship the creatures rather than the creator. Our sinful tendency is superstitious. Like this gentleman or this uh, Hebrew. Superstitious and making connections between things of, well maybe since they were worshiping their gods, I'm moving into their land. Maybe I need to worship them since I'm in their territory. Making connections between the fertility of the land and the, the wrong connection between that and produce, fruitfulness. Making the connection that Levi pointed out today that they thought because they were rich, what they were doing must have been right. That because they were a fruitful vine, because they had riches in this world, it must mean that God was for them. We know that we are, that God is for us if we're living in accordance with his word. 
especially and specifically when it comes to the issue of worship. And I said a strong word there that there, the reason why worship that we invent, the sinful tendencies, trusting these things, why that does, why that is wrong, why obedient worship is necessary, is because that God hates it. We see why in verse 31, when he says, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Here he gives them a pretty obvious example, and something that should probably strike us too. Obviously, worship that is done in sacrificing our children with burnt offerings is something that would be abominable to God that he would hate. And it would have been, at this time, pretty clear to the Israelites, too. But he's making a point. He's making a point about the necessity of obedient worship. If we turn to Leviticus, and I think it would be helpful to Leviticus chapter 18, just to read the first five verses, Leviticus 18 talks about worship, or really conduct, that is offensive to God. And he says, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, this is verse 2, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, which, where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. And if you were to read the list in Leviticus 18, it's a list of sexual practices that were practices in the land of Egypt and now in the land that they're going into, the land of Canaan. Skip down to verse 27, or verse 28 rather. Sorry, verse 26, last time I've changed it. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nations that were before you. When it comes to obedience to God, the necessity of obedience is specifically striking to us by the fact that we are prone to the similar destruction. God is not going to be partial to us. God does not look at, his pe- uh, look at his people when they sin and think that their sin is less because he's going to play favorites. God's justice is towards all humanity. The reason why they need to avoid these sins is so that they didn't, so that their reaping would not be in wickedness and sowing judgment. Israel was just as prone to that, and actually that's exactly what happened to them. 
Jeremiah will pick up on that same word in Leviticus 18 to talk about the fact that the worship of Israel got so bad that the land vomited them out also. The necessity of obedient worship stems from the fact of how much God cares about it. That's really the end of the story. God cares about the way he's worshipped. And he's specific to give us commands because he knows the world we live in. He knows our sinful tendencies. He knows that we are prone to wander. And his standard of justice, his standard of what worship is to look like, he's not going to lower his standard for his people. He's not going to lower his standard His standard is always perfection. This is when we are seeing the mirror of God's law, is it not? Let's look at, then, the obedient obedient worship defined. Obedient worship defined. And it's just in one simple verse, in verse 32. Everything that I command you you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. The historical way of wording this, obedient worship being the pattern for how we are to worship God, is something called the regulative principle. And basically what that means is that we are to be obedient to God's word. We're to do everything he commands, We're not to add to it, and we're not to take away from it. And he uses the word there, that's the same word as uh, verse 30, be careful not to be ensnared. He is now saying, everything that I command you, be careful to do it. We are to receive God's word, observe God's word, and we're to keep it pure and entire, to everything that it speaks to. The fact that worship, how we conduct, conduct our worship is to be obedient to God and is not just to be dictated by our culture and our imaginations should be pretty obvious to us if we realize that's how all of God's law works. When it comes to our ethical standard of life, of living, none of us are to make up a standard that applies only to us and to live accordingly. And if you go out in this world, especially this postmodern world that we live in, people really won't care if you believe differently than them. People will not care about your theology. What they'll care about, though, is your practice. They'll care about when you say that how they're living their lives is wrong. But God's word does that all the time. God's word never shies away from telling us that our way of living, that it's sinful if it's not in accordance with God's word. And it does not shy away with saying, if your worship is not in accordance with scripture, then it's sinful. That's a hard word. But at least the solution is simple. We are to do everything he commands. Now, the scope of this sermon is just to lay out the principle. 
But this principle extends into the New Testament. The fact that God cares about how he is worshipped. John chapter 4, Jesus is, he has a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And he has a conversation with her and they're covering a range of topics. But there's one point where she says, we say that where we're supposed to worship God is in Samaria. But you say it's at the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus does not say, oh, that doesn't matter. He says, soon that won't matter. But right now, he says, the Jews are right. The Jews know who God is. They worship him in Jerusalem. And you're wrong. But soon, it won't matter. Because what Jesus' work on the cross is about to be fulfilled, everything the temple was pointing to was about to be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 15 is also an important place to see that God cares about how we worship in the New Testament. Because in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is talking with the Pharisees. And he has a problem with the way that they are lifting their human tradition over God's explicit law. A law to honor your father and your mother. And they were subverting that with a man-made tradition that they could get out of honor honoring in their father and their mother and taking care of them and what jesus does not say is that your tradition is wrong because it's old or because that's the way we've always done things the reason why their tradition was wrong because it contradicted god's explicit word that we are to do everything that he commands us in worship is a principle that extends into the New Testament. And specifically, what we're told to be careful to do, and how we're told to be careful to keep every command, is that we're not to add to it or take away from it. This phrase, everything I command you, you shall carefully do, you shall not add to it or take away from it, this is not the only place that we find this phrase. We find this phrase a couple of different times in Deuteronomy, but we also see it in Revelation. Revelation chapter 22, verse 18. What's the significance behind such a statement? Think about what it says about these words and about this book. One implication to not add to it and to do, not take away anything from it is that this book that Moses is writing, he knows that this is God's word. When we're reading scripture, when you're reading the Deuteronomy or Revelation, the fact that it's so perfect that every word matters so much that we're not to take a word away from it or add anything to it speaks to the fact of its divine origin. And just as a side note, all the authors of Scripture wrote this way. All the authors of Scripture wrote with the understanding that this is the Word of God. Paul writes in Thessalonians that to receive his, that the Thessalonians received his Word rightly as God's 
word. And lastly, or the second thing that we see just as a side note, the fact that we cannot take away or add to it, is the fact that this work is complete as it stands. So not only is the content of Scripture, the content of this book of Deuteronomy, God's word and so perfect that and so sufficient that we're not to add anything to it or take anything away from it, but it's also complete. It doesn't need anything added to Deuteronomy to fill out any more details. And the same thing's true of Revelation, and the same thing's true for all of God's word. The word we have is sufficient for everything we need to know for life and practice. And God cares about how he's worshipped, so he's taken the time in his word to show us how we are to worship. And we're not to add, and we're not to subtract. We're not to add anything. God's word does not need our creativity. Our worship does not need new ideas to stay relevant. The worship of God doesn't need to be culturally relevant and try to, you know, take and piecemeal different things from the culture in order to reinvigorate our worship. No, we're actually told that by doing that, by adding to the worship of God and innovating our practice in that way, that we're actually ensnaring ourselves to the philosophies and the gods of the peoples around us. What often goes unmissed when we decide to look to the world to see how we can reinvigorate our worship and modify it to keep it new is we forget that when we take something out of the world, a practice out of it, and implement it in the worship of God, that it goes both ways. We're taking something out of the world, but we're also bringing something in. We bring its philosophy, its worldview, the God that it's served by it. We're not to add anything. What we're supposed to rely on, and it's beyond the scope to point out everything about our worship that is, has a positive warrant in Scripture. But the point here is just to say that anything we do, whether it's preaching, the songs that we sing, the prayers that we offer, the call to worship, the benediction, if we do not have positive warrant in Scripture, then what we're really doing is we're saying that God's means of grace, God's simple means of grace, is not sufficient for the task, that we need to innovate on it. And just to give you a couple of, of examples, the reason why we read the Word is because 2 Timothy 4.13 tells us to. We preach it because 2 Timothy 4.1-5 tells us to. We pray because that's part of the duty of what the church does in Acts 2.42. We sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs because that's what Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 tell us to do. We practice baptism and the Lord's Supper because that's what God's Word tells us to do, Matthew 28. Everything that we're to do as Christians, everything that we to do are to be because God has commanded it, because God cares about the how. And we're not to innovate on it, and we're also not to, that last word, or to take away from it. It's not the mere fact that God's word does not need our innovation, 
but also we are to take care that we do not take anything away from it because God's word is flawless. Nothing in God's word is there without a specific reason. All of God's word is good for edification, for instruction in righteousness. We are not to take anything away from it because all of it's needed. Proverbs 30 verses 5 and 6 says, Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and prove you a liar. In describing this text, we, I don't know, if, if you guys are like me, my mind automatically jumps to all the ways in which the world fails at this. The way Roman Catholic worship burns me up. Adding the practice of mass to the Lord's Supper, saying that Jesus Christ needs to be re-sacrificed every single week. Or prayers to Mary and the saints. Or different silly worship practices that we see throughout the world. Like water slides into baptismal pools. That's where my, my mind also so quickly goes. But before we think too highly of ourselves, and we point the thing, finger at other people, let's think about some probing questions. We've been given, in God's word, the command to pray, to lift up our request that he listens to us and cares for us. But do we not often have distracted prayers, falling asleep during sermons or prayers, not paying attention to the reading, and all of a sudden our mind just comes back into it at some point where there's some word that triggers us? Do we read God's word and see command explicitly there, and yet do not live by it? When it comes to the how of God's worship, the form does matter. And if we, are, if we think that we, we should think that we have the form right because we want to make sure that we're worshiping God, and if there's any time at All Saints where we figure out that something's done not in accordance with God's word, we would change it. That was actually something Rick told me one of the very first weeks that we were here, is if, that we see anything that wasn't in accordance with God's word, why don't we talk about it and see? Because we want to make sure that we don't turn a blind eye to it. But receiving God's word, just like with all of the commandments— we can sin against God, not just in deed, but also in thought, in word. If we look at any of the Ten Commandments and say to ourselves, yes, we got this one down, we're worshiping according to Scripture, we're listening to every command, and we're careful to do it, and not taking away anything from it, and not adding anything to it, we are deceived. We fall short of God's glory. The only one who lived up according to God's standard was Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that we don't care about God's law. Actually, when God saves us, He changes our hearts. He, Deuteronomy chapter 10, He circumcises our hearts that we're made sensitive to our sins, and we run to him. We trust in him 
to pay for all of our downfalls, every time that we have fallen short of the glory of God, for every time where we have not worshipped him as we ought, for every, t- every distracted prayer, every time we haven't listened to sermons or just ignored and were disobedient to the word of God, Jesus Christ, he lived the life that we should have lived. He was obedient to worship God throughout his entire life. And it's in, in his merits alone that we trust. First, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. We trust in him. When we read this, the last thing this should cause us to do is cause us pride. We should not be proud that, oh, we're not like all the sinful neighbors around us who worship those idols who practice abominable things, sacrificing their children in their worship practices? Who could come up with that? All of our hearts would come up with sinful, abominable practices, just like that, if God was not in his mercy, kind to us, saving us out of darkness and bringing us into light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for being our God. Thank you for giving us your word that instructs us not just how we are to live moral lives six days a week, but how we are to worship you the, uh, the seventh day, the day that you've sanctified to yourself. Lord, and our obedience is not out of thinking that we're going to earn your favor or that it's going to give us brownie points with you. We don't obey your law because we think it makes us better than our sinful neighbors. We obey your law. We worship you out of gratitude for everything that Christ has done. We obey your law and worship you because you have opened the eyes of our hearts to see and behold the goodness of God. The kindness of God has caused us to turn to his mercy. Lord, we confess that we have often found ourselves failing to worshiping you according to your word. We see ourselves constantly distracted. We look at our past and see how many times that we thought your word was not enough and that we would spice it up by adding to it or ignore something as important as prayer and subtracting from it. Lord, we confess our sins we thank you that because of what Jesus Christ died, uh, did to purchase us, dying on the cross and rising again, that you will not mark our iniquities against us, but instead that you will look to Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, pleasing to the Father, whose own heart was provoked by the idolatrous practices the subtraction in addition to God's word of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Lord, I pray that because our eyes have been opened to your glory, because of who you are, that you would give us a zeal for your worship and that we would bear witness to the nations that they should come and serve God because he is good. He is the maker of heaven and earth and he will forgive every sinner 
who turns to him in repentance and faith. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.